Okay, so it's going to be Acts 13, 13 to 23 for a sermon I've entitled Israel and the History of Redemption. Here's what it says. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphras and um, came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidia and Antioch on the Sabbath day, and they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue official sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the, uh, the descendant of this man, according to the promise of God, he has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. October 7th, 6.30 in the morning, sirens began to blare across Israel, warning of incoming rockets. A barrage of 2,200 missiles were being launched from the Gaza Strip. Now, Hamas's military leader, Mohammed Dieff, released a one-line message calling on Palestinians to rise up and attack Israeli settlements with whatever weapons they had, and many did. Commandos, some flying over security fences and paragliders, attacked Israelis gathered at a music festival, killing some 260 people and taking a number hostage. Hamas soldiers attacked settlements along the border, killing 1,200 people and taking more than 200 hostages. At 11.35, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced to the nation that they were at war. 600, or 300,000 Israeli reservists were called up to join IDF soldiers for the coming military operation. And on October 10th, Israel began bombing targets in the Gaza Strip. Well, to say that the Israeli government was uh, taken by surprise would be an understatement. Uh, the intelligence service famed for their prowess failed to see the attack coming. But the Israelis were also shocked and disgusted, sickened by the reports of the sadistic brutality perpetrated against soldiers and civilians alike. Not only were Hamas militants gunning down people in the streets, but they went into home after home executing whole families. Parents were tied together by wire and shot in front of their children. There's one report of a woman who had her baby taken from her, put in an oven, and turned on while she was screaming as she was being raped. Reports of children being beheaded and burned alive surface soon. Now, they say that the first casualty in war is the truth, and it's hard to know with the reports coming back what's true and what's actually propaganda. But what wasn't fake news was the body camera footage taken by Hamas fighters themselves who recorded their depraved actions. They also recorded uh, telephone conversations where militants called back to their parents to brag about the number of Jews that they had killed. Well, after the news agencies began to cast doubts on the accounts released by the Israeli government, the leaders brought together 100 journalists and showed them the actual footage that they had obtained. 
I saw an interview with one reporter who was still visibly shaken by what he had been shown. He said he had never in his entire life seen such horrendous examples of human cruelty. The Israeli actress Gal Gadot, she uh, played Wonder Woman in a recent movie. She's being accused of Islamophobia for her part in showing uh, footage of the atrocities released in the film Bearing Witness. At a theater in Los Angeles where it was debuting, a brawl broke out between pro-Palestinian protesters and backers of Israel. Now what was disheartening for many Israelis and Jews was the reaction by many around the globe who blamed Israel for everything that happened. They argued that the Palestinians in Gaza are an oppressed people and that the Israelis are therefore responsible for what happened. 100,000 people poured into the streets of London waving Palestinian flags and shouting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They're calling for the elimination of the Jewish state, Israel, and presumably the Jews within it. So many Jews now fear another rise of anti-Semitism, that is Jew hatred. You see, it's not just the Palestinians who hate the Jews, so do most Muslims, and there's anti-Israel rallies being held in many countries. Did you know that of all the UN resolutions, one half of them have been directed against Israel? Where does anti-Semitism come from? I mean, why are the Jews hated almost every place where they go? Well, many people trace it back to Christianity. Many Jews do as the source of anti-Semitism. But Jews were hated before Christianity ever arose. Haman, the Persian, tried to do away with the Jews in Esther's day. And 174, uh, 70 years before Jesus, Antiochus Epiphanes tried to wipe them out. Are Jews hated because they don't assimilate into the culture? In Numbers 23.9, Balaam prophesied of Israel saying, I see a people who live apart who do not consider themselves one of the nations. But if there was ever a country where they tried to assimilate, it was the country of Germany. How well did that work out for them? Is it jealousy because of their success in business? Is it because they're middlemen, merchants, and bankers that they're resented? No. The Lebanese are merchants around the globe, as are the Greeks and the Armenians. But who protests against them? Japanese Americans have the highest per capita income of any ethnic group, and yet nobody resents them for their wealth. Why then are the Jews hated? I think the ultimate reason is not financial, or political, or cultural, but spiritual. Israel is hated because they're God's chosen people, through whom God will bring salvation to the world. Well, today, we want to think about the role of Israel in God's plan of redemption and how he has worked through their history to bring the Messiah, the Savior, to the world. So to do that, let's pray and ask for his help. Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Uh, there's things going on in the world right now, and we know there's things, according to prophecy, that will be related to Israel in the future. So we pray that we would understand how you've worked through this nation to bring about your Son, the Savior of the world. We pray a blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this sermon uh, that Paul gives in chapter 13 is a long one, and there's no way we can adequately handle it in one message. So we're going to take two weeks to unpack it. But I want you to note the setting that uh, Paul had for this sermon. Having finished their work in Cyprus, it says, Paul and his companions put out for sea from Paphros and went to Perga and um, Pamphylia. Uh, that would be the southern part of modern-day Turkey. It says, but they, uh, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why John Mark left. And so the commentators uh, speculate about it. I mean, was he sick? Was he homesick? Was he afraid? Was he worn out? 
You know, it's hard to be a youth pastor when you take kids on camping trips, say to the boundary waters. You'll have some kids who are gung-ho and go-getters will rise to the challenge, and you'll have others who grumble all along the trail. I'm tired. My feet are sore. When are we going to eat? How am I supposed to make it out here without cell phone reception? Well, maybe when John Mark looked up at the steeps of the Taurus Mountains ahead of him, he thought, nah, I'm not up for that challenge. Whatever the reason, he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. At least that's the way Paul saw it. This incident is later going to cause tension between Paul and Barnabas when they set out on their next missionary journey. Well, the work has to go on even if the workers won't. And so we read this starting in verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian, Antioch. Now, by the way, this is not the same city that they left from. That's uh, Antioch in Syria. Uh, There's a number of cities in the ancient world called Antioch. In the United States, we have Kansas City, Missouri, and we have Kansas City, Kansas. I grew up outside of Monticello, Minnesota. There's also a, a Monticello in Iowa and one in Missouri. Thomas Jefferson homestead was known as Monticello. Same spelling, just pronounced differently. Well, this city of Antioch was not as big as the one in Syria, but it was still an important one and strategic for getting the gospel out. Paul didn't spend his time in small towns. He understood that if he reached a metropolis, that from there the gospel would spread out to the surrounding areas. And so we read this, And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, and after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, say it. I'm given an invitation to address the congregation, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. Now Paul's going to give a recount of God's work in history in Israel that led up to the coming of the Messiah. And so he starts with the first era being the choosing of the, of the patriarchs. And this is 17a, the choosing of the patriarchs. The God of this people chose our fathers. You remember that at the start, when God called Abraham, he was in Ur of the Chaldees. He was an idol-worshipping pagan. We're told that he said to him, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house and I will, uh, to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless you, those who bless you, and I will curse the one who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I remember buying a, a video series on Abraham and his life. Uh, down at a Christian bookstore. I brought it home, watched the first episode, and the guy said this in the beginning of it. He said, God looked down upon the earth to see if a man, he could find a man who had a heart that he could use. No. God didn't choose Abraham because he had a good heart. God chose Abraham because God had a good heart and showed grace and mercy to him. And it's that way for everyone who's saved. The Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man would boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9. I have to tell you, many Christians struggle with the doctrine of election, and ultimately uh, the idea that God chooses who will be saved and who won't. But you need to think about it. This should be the sweetest doctrine in the world for believers. I mean, speaking of his followers, Jesus, when he was praying to his father, said this, I have manifest your name, to the men that you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, John 17, 6. If you're a believer, you are a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. Just as God chose the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so he has chosen you for salvation, not because of some good quality in you, 
but because of his grace and his love for you. God's plan of salvation was worked out through the history of Israel, the nation which came from the patriarchs whom he had chosen. That brings us to our next era, though. The deliverance from Egypt. And this is 17b. It says, And he made the people great during their stay in Egypt. Remember when Jacob and his children and grandchildren went down to Joseph to live in the land of Goshen in Egypt? There were only 70 of them. But 400 years later, there was close to a million people. So great was the number that the Egyptians were worried that they would lead an uprising against them. And so they enslaved the people. But with an up lifted arm, it says, he led them out from it. And God displayed great powers in rescuing the children of Israel from their cruel taskmaster, Pharaoh. I mean, the Nile was turned to blood. Plagues of frogs and locusts and boils. Hail, three days of darkness, the death of the firstborns. You know, every time I get together with my grandchildren, they always say, Grandpa, show us a video where God splits the sea. You know? Cecil B. DeMille's did a nice job with that scene, but I bet the real thing was more impressive. Well, there were a lot of ethnic groups that were enslaved at that time. Why did God choose to rescue this motley crew? Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, he said this, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It was sheer grace that flowed out of the promise that he had made to Abraham, which caused God to enter into a covenant relationship with Israel to make him his people. And you know, if the people of Israel have reason to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt, how much more should we celebrate our deliverance from sin? I mean, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt under a cruel master. We're delivered from slavery to sin under our former taskmaster, Satan. Remember, Paul later would tell King Agrippa that Jesus had sent him to the Jews and the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. I have to tell you, all your non-Christian friends whether they realize it or not, are living under the dominion of Satan so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Acts 26, 18. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So just as the Jews remember the deliverance from Egypt every year when they celebrate Passover, Christians remember our deliverance from sin every time we observe communion. For Christ is our Passover lamb, lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. That brings us a third error, though, the years in the wilderness. And this is verse 18. Now those years were not good years. Rather than being God-honoring people who were grateful for all that God had done, Paul tells us in verse 18 that for a period of 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I mean, despite their constant grumbling against Moses and ultimately God, he still fed them manna from heaven and preserved them in those years. And even when he was fed up with them and told Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them and raise you up as a nation instead, Moses pled with God not to do so because he said, what are they going to say? They're going to say that you brought them out of Egypt and you couldn't take care of them. And so God did this, not for their sake, but for his own glory. You see, those 40 years in the wilderness was a time of testing for the people of Israel. God was testing them to see what was in their heart. And they were testing him to see how far they could push him because of their unbelief and disobedience. 
You know, the author of Hebrews warns Christians against going down that same path that Israel did in the wilderness. Quoting from the Old Testament, he says this, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, do not har- or today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, as when they provoked me in the, as in the days of trial in the wilderness. When their fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. And they do not know my ways. I swore in my wrath they would not enter my rest. And then listen to the application he makes to us. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Well, it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? See, see then that, it's not, that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Now, I have to say this, though. I don't think most of us understand just how much God hates hearing people grumble. Spending our time complaining about the difficulties we face in life, in ministry. I mean, when things don't go the way we want, we feel cheated as if God has wronged us. I remember a woman who was in my Bible study many years ago, and after the Bible study, we're sitting out in the front yard talking before I went home, and she was pouring out her heart to me. She was very bothered and bugged and upset that God hadn't saved her daughter yet. She said, you know, you would think with, after all the prayers I had made for her, God would answer me. She was offended that God had not, at least not yet, saved her daughter. But think about it. If a beggar asked you for $20 and you gave him 10 instead, would he have a right to be offended with you? No. You don't owe him anything. He's a beggar. And we're beggars at the throne of grace. Grace is not owned, owed, otherwise it's not grace. And yet God is wise and kind and good and gracious and he knows what he's doing. So don't grumble as he works out his plan in your life. That brings us to the next area, though, the inheriting of the land. This is number four. This is found in verse 19. It says, When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Now, the book of Joshua records the conquest of Canaan. There's amazing stories like the time that they marched around the city for seven days, and on the seventh day they marched around seven times, and then they shouted and the walls came tumbling down. But you know, as a whole, that first generation that entered the land was a good one. God had given the people in that day a heart to believe, but he made it clear even then that it was not because they were so righteous that they were going to dispossess the Canaanites, but because the Canaanites were so wicked. And he warned them that if they ever turned in the same path that the Canaanites did, he would dispossess them from the land as well. Which brings us to the next era, the period of the judges. That's verse 20. He said, after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. <laughs> now we speak of the Wild West days in American history. That's the period from 1865 to about 1895. Much of the western United States at the time was barely settled, and where it was, there were outlaws and Indians. Some of the big names from that time were Billy the Kid, Butch Cassidy, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, Buffalo Bill Cody, Wild Bill Hickok. Sometimes those lawmen were lawmen and later outlaws, or vice versa. Not only that, but they had to contend with uh, Indians as well. 
great warriors like Sitting Bull, Cochise, and Geronimo. Well, we're told several times in the book of Judges about their wild days. It says in their day, there, uh, there was no king, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's sounding increasing like our day, isn't it? If you read through and studied the book of Judges, you know that there's a recurring cycle. The people depart from the Lord. God raises up adversaries against Israel. The Philistines, Midianites, Hamas, Hezbollah. Well, not quite then, but yet. And as a result of their oppressors, they cry out to the Lord. And because he's compassionate and forgiving and gracious and merciful, he raises up a champion, a judge, to deliver them. I'm Ehud, who buried his sword in the belly of the king of Moab. Deborah, the iron lady who led Israel's army. Gideon, Samson, all of them were men and women who had hearts of iron, but feet of clay. And that cycle of sin and oppression, crying out, deliverance, back into sin, happened again and again. And you know, it's that way for a lot of people today. Some women just go from one failed relationship to another, never learning the lesson. Some men, after being free from alcohol for many, many years, go back with one drink only to enter into the same slavery. You know, and Christians, we can fall into a cycle of sin for a time, but we don't have to stay there because as the hymn says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captives free. Paul tells us in Romans 6, 8 to 14, he says, Now if we died with Christ, we also know that we'll live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master of him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin go on reigning in your mortal body, that you would obey its lusts. And do not present your bodies as, or the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. I mean, let everybody else do what's right in their own eyes. You do what's right in God's eyes. We're not enslaved to sin, for if the Son shall make you free, you'll be free indeed. Well, that brings us to the last error that he talks about, Saul and David. That's verses 21 to 23. So then they asked for a king. Now in chapter uh, 17 of Deuteronomy, God gave special instructions and commands for the time when they would have a king. It wasn't wrong for them to have a king, but it was wrong to ask because of their motivation. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They knew that the Lord was supposed to be their king, but they wanted to have a real king, one that could lead them out in battle. Now God told Samuel to warn the people of what having a king with a strong central government would mean for them. Higher taxes, a military draft, forced labor. Yeah, 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 but we still want a king. You know, President Gerald Ford was right when he said, any government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take everything you've got. Well, God gave them a king, a big, tall, handsome fellow named Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now, Saul looked the part, but he never played the part well. It was a spiritual disaster. He started out well, but quickly spiraled downward. He was impulsive, careless, disobedient, and even when they rebuked him severely, he never quite grasped the seriousness of the sins that he had committed. Well, after seeking help from a witch, his life ended on the battlefield, not by the sword of an enemy, but by his own sword when he committed suicide. What a tragic life. What a waste of 40 years. 
You know, they say that we have to have elections every few years so we can throw the bums out of office. Well, Saul was a bum, but it wasn't the people who removed him, it was God. It says this, after he removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Now, spiritually, Saul was about as dumb as a box of rocks. But God, when he saved David, David was already saved as just a young shepherd boy. It says, concerning whom he testified, saying, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who do all my will. So David was a military hero, political leader, a poet, a songwriter. But most of all, he was a man who loved God and was concerned about his glory. And so he lived full throttle. He threw himself into everything he did. He was also a man, though, who had a heart of iron and feet of clay, as evidenced by his sin with Bathsheba. But one thing you couldn't accuse David of was being half-hearted when it came to God. But the most important thing about David was not what he did for God, but what God did for him. He made a promise to him. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, it says this, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who shall come forth from you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, there was an initial fulfillment of that with Solomon who built the temple after David was gone. But both Jewish and Christian commentators argue that this looks well beyond Solomon to the ultimate son of David who would be the Messiah, who would reign forever. Well, now up to this point, everybody in the synagogue that day would have been nodding their heads in agreement. I mean, God certainly had worked through their nation to bring about a plan of redemption, and I would guess that when he mentioned David, everybody knew the next place that he would go, Paul in his discussion or sermon, would be to the Messiah. But they must have been shocked and wide-eyed when he said this, from the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now listen carefully. Everything up to that point, both Jews and Christians today can agree on. But here's where the divide is. Was and is Jesus Israel's Messiah? You know, there's a saying among Jews that goes like this. We don't know who the Messiah is, <laughs> but we know who he's not. He's not Jesus. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? If the Jewish apologists are right, he was a messianic pretender, a false prophet who tried to lead Israel away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. On the other hand, if the Christians are right, and Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one whose coming the prophets predicted, and the focus and the fulfillment of God's plan, then the Jews have missed it. I mean, if the Jews are right, Christians are idolaters, worshiping a mere man as God. If the Christians are right, the Jews have not only rejected their Messiah, but their God and his Son, Jesus Christ. And what's at stake in that question is heaven and hell. In the next part of his sermon, Paul's going to lay out his case that Jesus is indeed Israel's promised Messiah. We're going to consider that next week, but for right now, I want to draw, draw out three lessons from this passage. Here's the first one. God has and is taking a long time in working out his plan of redemption over hundreds, yea, even thousands of years. And he's not through with it yet. And if you're a believer, God is also taking a long time in working out his plan for your life. Over the years, through the ups and downs, he's shaping you and molding you, your character to make it like Jesus. Be patient with God, work in your life, considering how patient he's been with you. Here's a second lesson. Along the way, 
God has showed grace again and again to Israel. So also along the way, he's shown you much grace. If you look back on your life, even before you were called to be a believer, I'm sure you can see evidence of God's hand in and over your experience. And certainly after you're saved, God has shown you much grace by providing forgiveness and teaching you along the path. God's been good to you. And for those of you who don't know the Lord, He's still been good to you because you're hearing the Word of God right now. Well, here's the last thing I think we need to say, though. His plan has and yet will involve the nation of Israel. For though there's very few in that nation today who know Him, the day is going to come when He will redeem them as well. And so in the meantime, we continue to pray for the Israelis and for the Palestinians, for they both need to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his son, Jesus Christ. But here's the question. Do you know Jesus Christ? Not know about him, but do you actually know him? May God give you the grace to see Jesus for who he is so that you can trust in him alone for salvation. Let's pray. Our Father and God, I thank you for this history. It worked out over many centuries. And yet, uh, there were individuals who played parts. They came and went, but your plan continued. And so it is for us, Lord. We don't know how many days we've been given. We don't know where our life will go. But we know that if we're trusting in you, we'll be used by you to bless other people and to further your son's kingdom. And that's the kingdom we wait for as he returns and establishes it on earth. And we will be glad on that day, Lord, that we served you with joy and gladness. So help us to do that. Give us hearts to believe. For those who are here today and those who are listening over the internet and over the radio, I pray for their salvation as well. So bless us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to sing hymn.